We have a wonderful Savior we worship and serve. And even in dark days, we can give him praise. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. About a month or so ago, Becky and I were uh, going to a store here in Vallejo. And after parking our car, we noticed a sign on the window in the car next to ours. And in large letters, it read something like this. My catalytic converter has a shield over it. (laughs) Exclamation point. And just like you, we got a smile on our face. And it was like you could just hear them saying, just leave me alone. Go get somebody else's car. And then we realized our car was next to theirs. But what a picture of the days we're living in, right? I mean, just a few years ago, who would have ever been worried about getting their catalytic converter being, getting stolen? And yet we live in a culture that, where people are constantly doing malicious things. And sadly, it's often pe- those in power who promote evil people so they actually get away with their evil. Now, how are we to understand that? How are we to understand that? Why does God allow such wickedness? Is it because God is indifferent and doesn't care? That's what some people think. Or is it because God's not powerful enough to prevent evil? Others surmise, well, it's because God doesn't even exist. Or maybe there's another reason. In the book of Esther, it helps us understand why God allows evil and how he uses it to bring about his good purposes so that he's exalted. As we look at chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see here the rise of evil promoted by those in power. The rise of evil promoted by those in power. Look at chapter, let's go start in chapter 2, verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21. We'll just read through this. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And it was written written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now, it was, was, it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, And they do not observe the king's laws, so it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. 
and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions and plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Mordecai saved the king's life and it was overlooked. Haman, whose evil gets promoted. The righteous are often forgotten while the wicked are advanced. Now, why does that happen? Well, this is all part of God's perfect plan where he's accomplishing his far-reaching and eternal purposes. God is always doing way more than we see or know. Now, as we start chapter 3, and and really chapter 3 and 4 really make up the next section of Esther, we're going to see how God uses evil to bring about good. And that truth is hard for some people to grasp. If God is holy and righteous, how can God use evil to bring about good? And yet when you read the Bible, that's, you see God doing exactly that. And in doing this, it doesn't violate his holiness, doesn't violate his righteousness. He will allow evil up to a certain extent to accomplish his purposes, and then he punishes the people who do that evil. So even though their wickedness further God's purposes, they're still responsible for their evil actions. And of course, the clearest example of this in the Bible is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read Acts chapter 2, Peter rightly accused the Jews of nailing Jesus to a cross by the hands of godless men and putting him to death. So they were responsible for their wicked deeds. They put to death the Lord of glory. And yet Peter, in the same sermon, says this was part of all, this was all part of God's predetermined plan. So God used their evil to accomplish his good purposes. But the men who did that evil were still responsible for what they did. So this is all part of God's providence. And that's what we see here in Esther. Now in this chapter, in chapter 3, we are introduced to the villain of the story, Haman. And he's known throughout the book as the adversary of the Jews. Because of his hatred toward Mordecai, Haman decides that he wants to annihilate all the Jews. And he's in a position to do that. And so laws are passed which cannot be revoked to exterminate all the Jews throughout the empire, men, women, and children. And if you were to look at his, from man's perspective, his plan was foolproof. But from God's perspective, he allowed Haman to plan evil against his people. God allowed Haman's plan to succeed up to some point And the question we need to ask ourselves, why did God allow this? And that really gets to the heart of what we want to see. That God allows evil to succeed up to a certain point so that he is glorified. 
he's exalted. You know, there are times when you're going to find yourself in a dark place, in a time of great testing. Now, as a Christian, when you're in that place, what do you do instinctively? Well, you instinctively turn to God for help. You cry to God for deliverance. I mean, how many times do you read that in the Psalms? Like Psalm 31, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. So he's in this place where he's being afflicted and he feels like he's going to be cut off and he instinctively cries to the Lord because he knows God will deliver him. In fact, God says in Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. And so trials, what they do is they test your faith and they teach you to trust the Lord. I mean, think about this, beloved. If God's people were never in danger, then you would be deprived of some of the greatest opportunities of praising the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God and the power of God and the kindness of God and the watchfulness of God over you. See, God allows wicked schemes against his people to show us with what ease he can thwart their plans and bring their evil back on their own heads. Only a wise and powerful God can turn evil into good. And so what this teaches us is that God allows these things to happen so that he's exalted and that we will praise him, we will trust him. And so this morning we want to look at trusting God when it looks like evil is reigning. Trusting God when it looks like evil is reigning. That, that title fits today, doesn't it? Nothing's changed. I mean, Esther's written about 2,500 years ago. Everything's still the same. Evil seems like it's reigning. And so God's people then had to learn to trust him, and today we have to learn to trust him. So how do you do that? Well, first... To trust God when it seems like evil is reigning, you must understand the cosmic battle between good and evil. If you're going to learn to trust God, you've got to see the big picture. Know, understand the cosmic battle that's going on between good and evil. And it's interesting that this chapter begins with a conflict, right, between Mordecai and Haman. Well, their conflict was part of a greater battle between good and evil. This is a conflict between the Jews and the Agagites, the enemies of the Jews. It's a conflict between the people of God and the enemies of God. It's a battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And ultimately, this is a conflict between God and the devil. And we've got to remind ourselves that we're right in the middle of this spiritual warfare. We are in the middle of a spiritual battle. We're part of the conflict. There's spiritual warfare going on. As Paul reminds us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6. It's a spiritual warfare. So ultimately, our battle is not against people, though the devil uses people like Haman. But we need to understand, behind every Haman, there is someone more sinister who hates God, who hates his Christ. Notice verse 1. Verse 1 begins with these words, after these events. After Esther had been promoted to the queen. After Mordecai saved the king without being recognized these events in chapter 3 begin to unfold. But it's not right after. It's not right after. Verse 7 says it was the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So this is now the 12th year. Esther became queen toward the end of the 7th year. So we're now four plus years later. God had already put his people in place. God has already planned out what he's going to do. And he planned to deliver them four years before there was 
ever any danger. And what we see here and what we're reminded of is that God is in control of everything that happens here. And God is in control of everything that happens in your life. God has already provided the way of escape so that you can endure whatever you're going through. And so we can trust him through those. Verse 1 reveals the promotion of an evil person by those in power. King Ahasuerus promotes Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. So the lineage of Haman could be traced back to Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, who was he? Well, Agag was king when Saul was king of Israel. And the Amalekites were a people group that came from Esau. Esau's firstborn was Eliphaz, and Eliphaz's last son was Amalek. And they became a people group that lived in the southern part of Canaan. Well, the Amalekites hated the Jews. And this animosity went all the way back to Jacob and Esau. So the enmity between those two brothers carried down through the through their descendants, and it carried down through the centuries. So when God was delivering the Jews out of Egypt through the Red Sea, Amalek fought against the stragglers of Israel, according to Exodus 17. And because of that, God promised to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so then you fast forward a few hundred years after the Exodus, and King Saul comes, he's reigning, and God tells King Saul, I want you to go wipe out Amalek. Well, now Esther is now hundreds of years after King Saul. The conflict hasn't ended. Hasn't ended. And I would say it still hasn't ended. Still going on. There is a constant struggle between good and evil. Between light and darkness. Between the devil and his dark forces and Christ and the forces of light. And who's going to prevail in the end? Well, read your Bible. Jesus wins. Praise God. Right? Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus will crush the devil under his feet and throw him and his angels into the lake of fire that he created for the devil and his angels. And so this battle between good and evil will rage on until then. Well, in here in the time of Esther, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, was promoted by King Ahasuerus to the place of highest honor. And he's given authority over all the princes who were with him. And we have to think about this and ask the question, his advancement to the highest place wasn't an accident, was it? It wasn't an accident. The Amalekites hated the Jews, and Haman's no exception. And being an enemy of the Jews means he's an enemy of God. And he's being used by the devil to promote the devil's wicked agenda, which is to destroy the nation of Israel. Because if there is no Israel, there will be no Messiah. And no Messiah means no deliverance, no redemption, no forgiveness, no eternal life. And so what better person could there be promoted to promote the desires of the devil than one who's an Agagite. And yet, when we consider the sovereignty of God, we also know that God was the one who allowed Haman to be advanced to the highest position. God's in control. He's permitting these things to take place. And so we have to see the bigger picture that's going on here. God allows the devil and the forces of evil to have their way for a while. But it's all going to bring glory to God in the end. So God was the one who exalted Haman. God was the one who put his greatest enemy in the most influential 
an exalted position to oppose God so that God can show his people with what ease he can remove them. You don't have to fear them because God's in control. Praise God. Amen? You think this applies to today? See, this is written for our instruction, right? This applies to today. God makes the wrath of man to praise him. And so we don't have to fret when wicked people advance, when we have wicked rulers. Like like the psalmist, we, we, we need to perceive their end. Christ Jesus will have the last word, not them. And so even though we, we, we are living in wicked days, and it looks like evil is reigning, and people are getting away where their wickedness, that should stir us to pray to God. That, that should stir us to cry out to God, to bring their wickedness back on their own heads, and to deliver us, and to promote the cause of Christ. And so the king issues this command that all his servants who were at the king's gate were to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Now, being the king, his command is not to be violated. But immediately we see this conflict arise between good and evil, right? Because Mordecai would not bow down to Haman or pay him homage. Now, why wouldn't he do this? Now, the text doesn't tell us directly. It could be that Mordecai saw this as worshiping a man, and Scripture clearly tells us not to do that. But what's interesting is these words, these same words, are used in the Old Testament of simply showing respect to someone. And we have many examples. Abraham bowed to the people of the land when he was seeking to get a burial place for Sarah. Ruth, she bowed to Boaz. David bowed before Jonathan. And even Moses, who wrote the law and received the law and wrote it down, bowed before his father-in-law. So this was simply a way of showing respect and honor to others. So Mordecai's refusal to bow could be because he didn't want to honor Haman because he was an Agagite. And if you look at chapter 5, verse, the end of verse 9, it says... When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. He's filled with anger because Mordecai wouldn't stand up and show him respect. And so it seems to indicate, from that verse at least, that Mordecai's refusal to bow was because he just wouldn't bow before him because he's an Agagite. Well, his refusal to bow before Haman surprised the king's servants who were at the gate with him, right? It's a serious offense to disobey the king's command. And a person usually didn't get away with that. So they spoke to Mordecai daily about this, but he wouldn't listen to them. He wasn't going to bow to Haman. And he says, the reason why I'm not bowing down to him is because I'm a Jew, Now, we're not 100% certain why he wouldn't bow down, but we do see here, and this is the point, it led to conflict. It led to conflict. Mordecai's a Jew. Haman's an Agagite. Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, the first king of Israel, defeated Agag, of whom Haman was a descendant. Haman pictures the wicked seed of the devil. Mordecai pictures the good seed from God. And this battle between good and evil has been going on since the beginning. We see it right in Genesis chapter 3, right? God told the serpent and the devil behind the serpent that he would put enmity between his seed and the woman's seed. Her seed would be a man. It would be Christ who would bruise the devil on his head while he would bruise Christ on the heel. And so from the beginning, there's been this conflict between good and evil, between the seed of God and the seed of the devil. And that's the picture we see here. That's the battle going on. There's spiritual warfare going on behind all this, between good and evil. And the battlefield is the earth. Satan has his seed, 
He has his troops, has his men. God has his seed. God has his troops. He has his men. Satan is using Haman. God is using Mordecai. That battle continues today. It continues today. We are in this battle. As I said, it's spiritual warfare. And there is a real enemy who would like to destroy you. But if you have Christ, you're on the winning side. Praise God. Praise God. The decisive battle has already been won. Jesus has conquered sin and death, and he's defeated the devil. And he's going to come soon in triumph, and he's going to crush Satan under our feet, according to Romans 16. Now, Mordecai's refusal to bow before Haman led to this plotting of evil against good. Look at verse 5 again. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of of Ahasuerus. So Haman is provoked to anger because one man wouldn't bow down to him. See, because he thought he was somebody, he's filled with pride. When one person disrespected him, he boiled within. And the, and, and the way it's worded here, it's, he was fill, filled to the uttermost with rage. He was so angry, he couldn't get angrier. And so he acts in his wrath to get, to, to get even. He's going to get revenge on Mordecai. If he won't bow, I'm having his blood. Oh, but he wasn't content with just getting Mordecai. He's going to eliminate all the people of Mordecai. Thousands of innocent people would die to satisfy one man's indignation. Do you see how dangerous anger can be? And really the heart of his anger was his pride. He was proud. And so when he was disrespected, he got angry. You know, sometimes we we struggle with anger and we'll tell one another, hey, you need to put off your anger and put on kindness. And then you still struggle with anger because you never get to the root of your anger. And sometimes the root of your anger is pride. You don't like it when things don't go your way. You, you don't like it when someone disrespects you and you get angry. Well, that's pride. And if you get to the root of your anger, pride, pride and deal with your pride, that's going to help you with your anger. So Haman's wrath led him to destroy all the Jews and the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And that would essentially wipe out all the known Jews. So why is his plot so sinister and so extensive? Well, we'd have to say there's only one explanation for this. There's someone behind Haman's fury that is deeper and darker and filled with more malice than even Haman could muster. And of course, that's Satan. The devil wants to destroy those who follow Christ. And here, at that time, he he targeted the entire Jewish race to attempt somehow to change the course of redemptive history that God had planned for Israel. And when you read your Bible, you see there were constant threats against God's people. In Exodus, Pharaoh tries to kill all the male babies being born. Well, if he succeeds, what happens? No more Israel. In 2 Kings, evil queen Athaliah tried to kill all the royal offspring of the line of King David. And they were her own grandchildren. No line of David, no coming king. Or how about when Jesus was born? Herod tried to kill him. 
and he sends in his troops and they slaughter all those babies. See, all through the centuries, there's been this hatred of the Jews and these evil plots come from the devil himself. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, because Revelation 12 reveals this. And it, and it helps us see this cosmic spiritual warfare that's going on. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. We're going to learn that this woman it represents the nation of Israel. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and he threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that, she would, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. That's Christ. That's our Lord Jesus. Born of the nation of Israel. Verse 6. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who's called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. See the cosmic warfare going on here? This great battle between good and evil. God has his angels, the devil has his angels. And we see when Jesus was born... Right? He, the devil was behind Herod to try to kill Jesus. But God protected him. Why? Because he's the Lord of glory. He's his anointed one. He's the Christ who will rule over all the nations. You see, Satan is constantly working to hinder the work of Christ. And he uses and promotes his agenda through wicked men who persecute God's people. And so the word of God helps us understand what's really going on so we know who the real enemy is and we fight with the right weapons. Ephesians, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Oh, beloved, this devil has schemes. And he's going to attempt to deceive you lie to you to destroy you. And God's armor is our protection. And his armor that is for our protection and for our survival is his truth. Gird your loins with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Christ's righteousness. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Right? Be taking the gospel everywhere. Take up the shield of faith by which you will be able to destroy all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Right? It's your faith in God's promises that's going to protect you from him. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so if you're going to stand firm against these mighty enemies, against these evil people who want to promote their evil agenda in your life, you've got to take up the full armor of God. That's how you're going to stand. You must saturate your mind in the truth. Go back to Esther. When we get to chapter 4 next week, we, we're going to find Esther and Mordecai caught up in the middle of this evil. 
How would they stand? How would they stand? See, how will you stand? When you find yourself in a a, a dark trial, when you're being assaulted by wicked people, how will you stand? I mean, think about athletes. Athletes don't prepare for the Olympics by just showing up. Soldiers, if they did that for a battle, they would be destroyed. I mean, think about showing up to a battle and you've never learned how to load your gun or learn how to use your gun. We're in spiritual warfare. Learn how to wield the sword. You've got to learn how to wield the sword. So have you forgotten that? Sometimes we forget that, right? Because the devil is scheming. The devil is deceiving. And we just get caught up in worldly pursuits sometimes. And we become complacent with the things of the world, the comforts of the world. We need to repent of that, be sober-minded, and be reminded we're in a battle. And the battle is ever going. And if you're not prepared, you will fall in the battle. Your trials will overwhelm you. To be sober, you've got to stand firm in the truth. And so what we see here, when, when, when Haman and his evil plot is advancing... When we look at this, if we understand our Bibles correctly, we know God allowed the devil to incite Haman, which didn't take a lot of prodding because Haman's full of pride and he hates the Jews. And God allows Haman to begin to carry out his plan. And God's going to allow this madness up to a certain point. But then we're going to see he's going to turn it all around for his glory and his people's good. But this first point, it was simply this. You need to understand there is a cosmic battle going on between good and evil that we're involved in, that we're a part of. And our hope and trust in the midst of all the evil going on around us is in the sovereign power of God who is accomplishing all his good pleasure for the glory of his Son. That's our confidence. And the way we stand firm is by being in the word. Secondly, to trust God when it seems like evil is reigning, you must understand how the world operates. Oh, we got to understand how the world operates. We, We cannot be naive about unbelievers in the world. Our our theology reminds us that people of the world are depraved sinners. Now, that doesn't mean they're as evil, uh, every person is as evil as they can be. No, that doesn't mean that. But it does mean that people do evil things, which is why they need Christ. But we don't want to be unaware of what drives unbelievers. It's their selfish, sinful desires. And we see that in this text. The first thing we want to notice is this. The world trusts in fate, not God. The world trusts in fate, not God. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So Haman cast Pur, which we're told was the lot, to determine when he should carry out his devilish plans. Now, the lot were, like, were small stones. They were like dice that, he, that were cast. And so Haman is relying on the luck of the roll to determine when he should carry out his plan. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. He believed things happened by chance. He's super, superstitious. He's putting his confidence in fate. What he didn't know was what Solomon had written. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16. In other words, Haman was relying on the luck of the roll, but what he didn't know was God would determine what day it would land on. 
God controlled the roll of the dice. And so when Haman cast the lot, it was the first month. The lot fell on the 12th month. Now think about how significant that is. Because if it would have landed, say, on the third month, there would not have been time for the events of Esther to take place, and the Jews surely would have been exterminated. But God controls where it lands. It landed on the 12th month to give plenty of time for God's plan to succeed. God's in control. Beloved, where do you put your confidence Do you believe things happen by chance, by the random draw of the card, by karma? Or do you believe in the providence of God, that God controls every small detail of every event? If you believe in fate, then you have no hope because life is meaningless. Things happen by chance and your circumstances are just the result of fate. But if you believe in the providence of God, then there's hope. Because that means there's purpose and meaning to everything that's happening. And this book reminds us that you can be confident in God because he is working out his purposes exactly as he has planned. God determines what will be and what will not be. So the world, it believes in fate, not God. Secondly, the world makes accusations that are often slanderous and unjust against God's people. The world will make accusations that are often slanderous and unjust against God's people. That's how the world operates. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the providence of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. That was an outright lie. He's purposely deceiving the king about the Jews, giving a false and malicious representation of them. I mean, according to Haman, I mean, these people were despicably dangerous. They have different laws, O king. Well, that's a partial truth, but a half-truth is a lie. And many of the Jews' laws that were different were dietary laws that didn't affect, have any effect on others, except for maybe the local bacon market, I don't know. God's law actually encouraged obedience and submission to governing authorities, not rebellion. And then he just flat out lies. He says, they don't obey your commands, O king. So he's picturing them as insubordinate radicals, which means it's not in the king's best interest to keep that these people, you allow them to exist because they're going to infect others and there's going to be outright rebellion. And so he's purposely telling lies to deceive the king. Now, that scene that we see here has been played out in history over and over and over. The first time was in Genesis chapter 3, right? When the serpent filled Eve's mind with lies and deception. And that's what we see here. The devil is speaking through Haman, filling the king's mind with lies. Haman was just like his father, the devil. Proud, insensitive, malicious, scheming, untruthful callous. And beloved, you can expect the same type of treatment to happen to you, no matter how faithful you are or supportive you try to be on your job or how good a citizen you try to be. You will suffer for being a Christian just for living righteously. Peter says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Peter says you're going to be mistreated just for living righteously. Be prepared to share your testimony. Be prepared. 
Listen, when you are mistreated for doing what's right, when you stand up for the unborn, when you stand against the sexual perversion of our culture, when you're simply just living a godly life, you're going to be mocked and ridiculed. And God will use that suffering as an opportunity for you to give glory to Christ of why you're living that way. See, the world will make unjust accusations simply because you're living for Christ. That's how the world operates. And then a third thing we see here about the world is that they will use whatever means to get what they want. They will use whatever means to get what they want. Verse 9. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. So what's Haman doing here? Using bribery to get what he wants. 10,000 talents was an incredible amount of money. The exact dollar amount is uncertain, but it reportedly weighed 375 tons. And some commentators estimate that it would equal about 60 to 70% of the king's annual revenue. This is a lot of money. So Haman is offering to fatten the coffers of the king if he signs this law to annihilate the Jews. Oh, not only will it be good for your kingdom, O king, but let's sweeten the deal. I will personally pay 10,000 talents of silver to the king's treasury. And this money would come from Haman and from the plunder from the Jews and it would go into the king's pocket. You see what's going on here? He wants revenge no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. And Haman really provides a picture of the person God hates. Proverbs Chapter 6 says this, There's six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That's Haman. But that's how the world operates. That's how they operate. People don't, they trust in fate, not God. They purposely slander and make unjust accusations against God's people. And they will resort to whatever they can to get what they want. And sadly, these tactics often work. Because we see Haman here given the king's authority to do what he wants. Look at verse 10. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours, the people also to do with them as you please. The king's ring was his authority. He gives it to Haman. So now Haman has the authority and the power of the king to carry out his wicked schemes. And the king then gives him his blessing. Go do as you please. The king is eager to eliminate this rebellion against his authority, but he's never examined the truth of the allegations. And it's interesting in verse 10 here that the author repeats who Haman was. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Yep, he is the enemy of the Jews. Public enemy number one. Listen, if, if, if Haman had been an Egyptian or, may, or even a Persian, there might be some hope. But oh no, this guy's an Agagite. The Jews' worst enemy is now in power and he has favor with the king. That's not good news. Things could not be any bleaker. These things happen still today, don't they? I mean, it's like we're reading about today. Someone gets elected to office, and it's clear he's an enemy of God, and he hates Christians. He's public enemy number one. And immediately he gets into office, he starts passing laws that are against God to murder unborn babies, 
to, to mutilate children without their parents' even consent, to promote sexual perversion to our children, again, without your consent, and to put to death the aged. But we need to remember something, that just like in the days of Esther, God's in control. How do we see that? Well, God allowed Haman to prosper so that he had 10,000 talents of silver by which he could bribe the king. Because we know from Scripture, riches come from God. Every good thing given comes from the Father of lights. We know that God was the one who allowed Haman to be in a place of authority. For every authority comes from God. God was the one who allowed Haman to gain favor with the king. See, when we look at the book of Esther, we see the big picture. We see, we know God's doing that because we see how the story ends. See, that's where we got to have faith because you don't know how your story's going to end. Right? But the book of Esther helps us see that God is actually working, even when you don't see him working. When evil seems to be reigning, oh, God is still reigning. And that's where we got to have faith, and we got to trust God, and we got to cry out to God. And so Esther is a book of hope for us, because when things look their darkest, God's about ready to act. And that brings us to our third point. To trust God when it seems like evil is reigning, you must believe something. You must believe that God's plan will be accomplished, not those of his enemies. Believe that God's plan will be accomplished, not those of his enemies. In the last verses of this chapter, we see the execution of Haman's plan. And it seems, from man's perspective at least, it's foolproof because there's nothing that can stop it. In fact, Haman carried out his plan exactly as he determined. Look at verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So Haman's doing what he wants. He gathers all the scribes and he writes the law just as he commanded. So he's fulfilling his plan exactly as he wants because he has the full authority of the king to act. So his plan is going exactly as planned. There's no one higher than the king to stop him. Oh, but there is. But there is. Haman's plan, we see here, was to completely annihilate all the Jews. He wants to annihilate them all. Not satisfied to simply kill the men. His goal is complete destruction, including the young and the old, women and children. This was an ambitious plot to destroy all the Jews in one day. And he ordered the seizing of their possessions as plunder. Now, most of that would go into the king's treasury. Some of it would be the reward of those who did the killing. I mean, think about what the king did. He signed a law that unwittingly would kill his wife. This plan originated from the schemes of the devil because if it succeeds, there's no chosen race, there's no Messiah, there's no gospel, there's no salvation, there's no one to crush the devil. Think about what God did here. God allowed his people to be brought to the brink of ruin that he might manifest his great power in their deliverance. That's why he's doing this. I want to show you how great I am, how easily I can thwart your enemies. Haman's plan was foolproof. It couldn't be revoked. Verse 14, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they would be ready for this day. This was a law of the Medes and Persians. can't be revealed, uh, revoked. So this meant certain doom for the Jews. It was published everywhere. People of every language in the whole empire were to get ready for this 
day, and then the plans carried out quickly. Verse 15, the couriers went out impelled by the king's command. They hastened to get it out. And once the plan is set in motion, oh, it was time for Haman and the king to sit down and have a victory toast. Right? Verse 15. While the decree was issued, it says, while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city was in confusion. Haman was confident his plan would succeed. It would be carried out swiftly and smoothly. All he had to do was wait for the big day. So now he has the satisfaction of just waiting for that day to have his revenge. It's time for a drink. Time for a toast. Let's toast to victory. And the king, as far as he knew, had just gotten rid of of some troublesome people. And he added $10,000 into the, or 10,000 talents to the king's treasuries. It was time to celebrate. But the law resulted in confusion to the people of Susa. So even these unbelievers were perplexed at the severity of this law. You see, Haman was ready to celebrate because he thought it was a foolproof plan. But what he failed to recognize is that there's a God who rules. God's going to have the last word because God's plans don't fail. Look at verse 13 again. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar. The reason why it was that day was because that's the day God determined it would happen. That's why it was that day. So things are not happening by chance. Things are not happening by accident. No, there's a sovereign God behind all this accomplishing his purposes. Turn with me to to Psalm 2, and we'll finish with Psalm 2, because we have a picture of this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins with this. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The peoples, the kings, the rulers of earth, they take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. And what the people of the world do, they're plotting together how to get rid of God. We don't want God reigning over us. We don't want Jesus reigning over us. And they're plotting that. And they're devising these wicked, evil plans, not only against God, but against his people. That's happening today. That's happening with our rulers. How does God respond to that? Is God in heaven just wringing his hand, wondering how things are going to turn out? No, look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Well, what, you puny man, what do you think that I can't squash you? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God is laughing because wicked men may devise evil plans. They can't carry them out. And so we don't need to fret when evil men seem to be reigning. Why? Because God's plans are going to be established, not theirs. And God's even going to use their evil to accomplish his purposes. You see, God has a plan. He's installed his king. Jesus is reigning. Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That's Revelation 12. I read that earlier. You shall shatter them like earthenware. 
You see what the Father has done? He's put his son as king. He's given Jesus the nations to rule over. And Jesus is reigning right now. And someday he's going to return and he's going to rule in Zion from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. That's where history is going. That's God's plan. But right now, before that happens, before Jesus comes, God is offering these wicked, sinful people on earth terms of peace. That's what he's doing. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. O judges of the earth, take warning. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he might not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, the invitation is, Come to Christ, bow to Christ, worship the Son so that you won't receive his wrath because he has provided a way for his wrath to be kindled for you. It was poured out on him in your place. And so the terms of peace are turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And I love how it ends. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's what he offers you. Praise God for that. Well, this chapter ends with Haman giving a victory toast with the king. Evil surely looks like it's raining. Things don't look too good for the Jews. They're faced with annihilation. What a dark day. And Haman's plot seems foolproof, right? For the laws of the Medes of the Persians cannot be revoked. And you read the rest of Esther and you find out something. That law was never revoked. It was never revoked. Isn't it amazing how far God will allow things to go before he acts? See, clearly it was God who allowed this plan to succeed. It was God who allowed Haman to find favor with the king It was God who moved on the king to approve such a wicked plan. This was a time of great testing and trial for God's people. But God's doing this for a purpose. He's doing this for a purpose. And beloved, if you find yourself going through dark times, God has allowed it for a purpose. Can you trust him when evil seems like it's raining? Can you trust him? Well, to trust him, you got to see things from his perspective. you, you got to know what God's doing in the world so that when trials come, you can trust him. To trust him, you got to take up the full armor of God so that you're able to stand firm. you got to take up the sword of the Spirit and learn how to wield it. To survive, you must be sober-minded. And you've got to teach your disciples and teach your children to be sober-minded. Are you teaching your kids to be about the warfare that's going on? And how to stand firm against the onslaughts of the evil one? Or are you just indulging in temporary happiness for your kids? What are you teaching them? Help them be sober because the days are evil. God is doing a work in our day just as he was then. God is not surprised by the evil of our culture. He's not surprised by the wicked things they want to do against his people. God allows evil to be planned against his people, but he will only allow it to go so far and then he will act. There is no danger from which the Lord Jesus cannot rescue you from. And if you have Jesus on your side, you will have the victory. You can trust him. He is reigning, even though it looks like at times evil is. He is reigning. Let's pray. Stand with me.
Oh, Lord, what a picture of what's happening behind the scenes. We see all this evil going on all over the place in our culture, just like then. Nothing's changed. And yet, Lord, when we step back and look at Scripture and look at the bigger picture, we see what you're doing. We see what the devil's doing. We see what you're doing. And, Lord, we know and we are confident, Lord, that you will have the last word. And so, Lord, help your people. Help us to trust you in those dark days. Help us to be sober-minded, Lord, and remember we're in a battle, Lord, and live appropriately. Lord, help us to be people of the word, Lord, so that when trials come, we know how to respond. Oh, encourage your people, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.